Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. The life of Israel during the time of the Judges is tragic, to say the least. In fact, if it weren't so devastatingly painful to consider the events of this 350-year time period, it would actually be comical. I mean, how could a God-appointed nation fall into such moral and religious corruption only one generation removed from the time of Joshua and the conquest? Israel had become a godless nation that was deep in sin and headed for disaster. Israel had, had, had lost their way. The, the final story that we're considering began in chapter 19 with a rape and a murder of a concubine of a Levite man. And the nation of Israel retaliates without fully understanding the consequences or what actually took place. They retaliate against Benjamin. And, um, and now, in chapter 21, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is on the brink of being completely destroyed, wiped out. Let's read our passage this evening. I'll, I'll begin in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there, and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. And they said, what, what one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with the man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Remon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead. Yet, there were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. 
So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel and on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so, and took wives according to their number, and from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the cities, and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As we have been considering, a nation without a Godward focus will respond to corruption with greater acts of corruption. Israel here is in a predicament. Verses 1-7, through seven, we, we see this, and this really provides the setting for the events that take place in chapter 21. And these first several verses give us the information about the predicament or the dilemma that they're in. In verse 1, the author tells us the first predicament that they've put themselves in, and that is this. Verse 1, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the first predicament is, Israel has made an oath to God not to give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. And uh, this this would have happened probably before they even attacked Benjamin. That When they met, that's why the text says they did this in Mizpah, probably before they even attacked Benjamin. Remember, they went after Benjamin and ended up putting this ambush on them and, and, and attacking and destroying all but 600 of the men. And before that, they had agreed, we are not going to give any of our people, any of our daughters in marriage to these men. Essentially saying that we're going to destroy them and allow them to be completely uh, extinct. And the reason that's mentioned will become clear as the passage unfolds. The second predicament is that they were now concerned about Benjamin, which is amazing. Verses 2-4, through So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening. And notice what they're doing. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. What are they weeping over? Benjamin doesn't have any wives. None of the men of Benjamin have a wife. And this is interesting because in chapters 19 and 20, they, they were shocked and distraught over the tragedy of the murdered concubine. And then when they lost those first two battles against Benjamin, what were they doing? They're crying before the Lord. They're, they're, they're fasting and praying and asking God for help. And they're, they're weeping. Now they're weeping not over the fact that they're being defeated and that Benjamin can't be defeated, but now that Benjamin is defeated. see their sorrow in verse 6. And he and uh, excuse me, and the sons of Israel verse 6 were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said one tribe is cut off from Israel today. And then verse 15. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Here is a great example of what happens to a 
person or a group of people who have no moral bearings. Notice the plea that they make to God in verse 3. They said, Why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe would be missing or cut off today in Israel? God, why is this happening? What are they doing here? They're pointing the finger at God. God, You caused this to happen. And we're saddened by how You brought this about. So here's Israel's dilemma. They feel sorry for Benjamin because Benjamin is on the brink of being wiped out. And they can't give any of their daughters to Benjamin in marriage because they've pledged not to do so. And so, with their concern... Uh, before I say that, I just wanted to point your attention to verse 5. They have one thing in their favor. Look at verse 5. And the sons of Israel said, Who is there among the, all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? So they had one thing in their favor, and that is that some of the people of Israel did not come to fight with them. They didn't take part in this unified, uh, unified effort to go after Benjamin and the, the godless act that was committed among the people of ben- Benjamin. And so now with their concern for Benjamin and with their oath not to give them daughters and their oath to, we're going to see, to destroy all those who didn't come to fight, Israel comes up with a plan. Israel's predicament is that they're concerned about the people of Benjamin, but they can't give their own daughters. And now we see in verses 8-24, through 24, Israel's ploy. Israel's ploy to continue the line of Benjamin. Israel's ploy to continue the line of Benjamin. Israel felt bad for leaving ben- Benjamin in a position where they had no descendants and for taking a- a- away from them the ability to have legitimate descendants. Remember what happened in chapter 20? That they, they chased them out of their city and they destroyed 25,100 of them and 600 were only remaining, just the men, and they were hiding out in the rocks of Rimon. And then they went back into the city and they destroyed all the women and children, all the cattle, all the animals, everything that they had, leaving Benjamin with nothing. And so now they, they, they come to recognize how devastating this is going to be for the people of Benjamin. And they felt that if they didn't do something, one of two things would happen. Either Benjamin would become obsolete, they would no longer be one of the, the twelve tribes, they would become like Edom, have no descendants. Or Benjamin would be forced to marry whom? Pagan women's pagan women, right? Not not people from in the nation of Israel. And now, if they did that, they would become a disgrace to the nation of Israel because their descendants, Benjamin's descendants, would be half breeds, much like the Samaritans and how they were frowned upon and looked down upon during the time of Jesus, right? So those are the only two options, really. If they didn't do something, they would either go obsolete. They would their their line would end with those six hundred men or they would marry pagan women. So, they, they come up with a plan. And here's their plan in verses 8-24. through And it is to attack this city who did not come to help them. This city, Jabesh-Gilead, is part of the tribe of Gad. It's about halfway up in, in Israel, if you think about it on a map. And after, the, after a brief investigation in verses 8 and 9, they determine that no soldier came from Jabesh-Gilead. Remember, everybody had come from all the tribes and apparently including Gad. But this one city, which was part of Gad, 
did not send anybody. They didn't send any warriors to help out in this fight. And so they had made a vow. Notice um, notice verse 5. The second part says, For they had taken a great oath, here's a vow, concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So they... <coughs> excuse me. They had taken two vows. One, we're not going to give our daughters to Benjamin in marriage. And two, anybody who does not come to fight with them, they're going to be put to death. And so now, here's how the plan kind of comes together. Okay, Benjamin doesn't have any descendants. Benjamin doesn't have any women that they can marry. But we also made a vow that whoever didn't come to help us in battle would be killed. So why don't we go after Jabesh Gilead? And so they take 12,000 of their best warriors out of the 300 and some thousand that were remaining from the Civil War. And they send them to the city of Jabesh Gilead. And certainly they were unsuspecting of what was going to take place. But, but they, they basically wiped out the entire city, including the wives and the children, according to verse 10. Notice verse 10. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there that is Jabesh-Gilead, and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. So, don't spare anyone who is married or who is a child or who is a man. Now, we're going to see that they do spare some people. And notice verse 11. It makes it a little bit more clear. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with the man. So, Every man, no question about that, every child, but only the women who have lain with the man, that is, the women who are married. Verse 12 tells us a little bit further, explains in a little bit more detail, and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with, with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So, it wasn't by accident that 400 virgins remained after they did this this uh, terrible... Uh, they, they wiped out these people in Jabesh Gilead. Their, their responsibility, these 12,000 12, warriors were supposed to slaughter the entire town full of people and spare only the eligible bachelorettes. That's it. Now, to Israel's credit, there was a provision in the Mosaic Law that allowed Israel to spare the virgins of a city in Numbers 31, 17, and 18, when they would go to destroy a nation, they were to destroy them all. But they were allowed to, and this is speaking of foreign nations, they were to, allowed to spare the virgins that were in the city. But here's the big difference. This is not an enemy nation. This is not a foreign nation. Israel has resorted to killing its own people in order to provide wives for the Benjamites. They brought these women back to Shiloh. And then, now with these 400 young virgins there in Shiloh, they send a message to Benjamin. Remember Benjamin? The tribe of Benjamin is still hiding out in the rocks of Rimon. And they had been there for four months, according to chapter 20, verse 47. And now they send this message. Okay, Come back to us. We're sorry for what happened. We want, we want to give an offer of peace to you. And we've got these women for you to marry so that you can continue your family line. And they're, they're women from within the tribes of Israel. And apparently that worked. 
because Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, comes out of the, the caves from which they were hiding. And so in verse 14, we have this reunion of sorts with all the tribes of Israel. And yet we find that that's not enough. Notice the end of verse 14. Yet they, the 400 women, were not enough for them. Remember how many Benjamites were remaining? There's 600. So you still need 200 more women if you're going to allow this family line to continue uh, properly, apparently in Israel's mind. And so they recognized that they had to do something. So with the reunion and verse 15, they felt sorry for them. So verses 16 through 18, the leaders of Israel meet. And they are at this point at a loss. What are we going to do? We've tapped out all of our ideas of what we could possibly do. And, and now what are we going to do? They had already made a vow that they can't give their own daughters. So what, what's left? And the answer comes in verses 19 through 24. It is a theft at the festival that takes place in Shiloh. So here's the second plan. The first plan, go destroy a city and take the, the women that are left and give them to Benjamin. The second plan is to have Benjamin, the remaining Benjamites who don't have a wife, steal a woman from this festival, a probably uh, probably the Feast of Tabernacles, probably one of the, the required Jewish festivals that would happen throughout a year. The reason I say that is because there is a mention there in uh, that, that it happens... Around the verse 21, uh, right before that, verse 20 says, "Go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out." So, if this is happening around the vineyards, it very well could be the Feast of Tabernacles, which is time when when all the harvest comes in, and they would give thanks to God by giving Him some of the harvest. So Benjamin was going to wait in the vineyards, and they would just steal some of the Israelite women who were there. Notice the language of the text in verse 20. Watch and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards and each of you shall catch his wife. Sometimes when guys talk about getting married, they got a good catch type, type thing. Or I think of you know Seven Brides for Seven Brothers movie where they actually pick them up and put them under their arm and carry them off. This is basically what's happening here. Terrible. There's no consent on the part of the girl or on the part of her family. And that's why the, the elders of Israel, they recognize what's going on here. And they recognize that there's going to be an argument. There's going to be some complaining on the part of the girl's daughter, or fathers and their brothers. And they're going to come to the leaders of Israel and say, what is going on? What, what can we do about our, our daughters being stolen from us? I mean, they didn't pay the bride price. And the leaders of Israel had already had this thought out. Notice verse 22. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. So, Here's how we're going to appease the fathers and the brothers of these girls who are stolen. We're going to tell them that you haven't broken your vow. What was the vow? We cannot give our daughters in marriage to Benjamin. So you're not going to break that vow because you didn't do it voluntarily, right? They were stolen from you. And also, in order for Israel to be protected against some kind of 
of uh, backlash that's going to come from these brothers and fathers. Uh, basically, Israel was saying that that we have sanctioned that this would happen. We as a people group have decided this is what's going to happen. So, you can't do anything about it. If you try to attack us, we'll defend ourselves and you will be destroyed. Talking to the brothers and the fathers. They, they couldn't retaliate against Benjamin because they had all of Israel. Benjamin now had all of Israel on its side. You see? So they protect themselves on both sides. Both from the the fact that these brothers and fathers would basically go against their vow. They wouldn't because they were stolen. And also against being retaliated against. And so um, they, the leaders of Israel had this all figured out. So they tell Benjamin the plot and Benjamin follows through on the plot. Verse 23. And they, they caught their wives and carried them away. Verse 23 says. And verse 24, the sons of Israel departed from there every man to his own tribe and family. And each of them went out of there from there to his inheritance. And everyone lived happily ever after. I mean, it is terrible how far Israel has fallen. I mean, just think about this in terms of the the broader perspective of these three chapters. All of this trouble that Israel is experiencing right now as it has been brought on by itself. And as a result of their poor or leadership or lack of leadership, it started with a cowardly act of a corrupted Levite who offered up his wife to the ravenous Benjamites and then exasperated the problems by not taking ownership for his part in her death, her rape and death, and then sending body parts all over the nation to incite a civil war. The nation comes together in unity against Benjamin in order to, to do something about this rape and murder. And the nation responds with vehement and in some sense an unjust war against the whole tribe of Benjamin. And as a result, Benjamin was very close to being completely wiped out. And so, Israel, in order to keep it from happening, Benjamin being wiped out, they decide to destroy the people of Jabesh Gilead, their own people, and give the remaining virgins to Benjamin and then tell the remaining remaining Benjamites to steal a Jewish virgin from the festival in Shiloh. And so in the end, think about this just as a whole. Israel is trying to bring restitution for the rape and murder of the Levite's wife. And how do they do it? In order to bring justice, for her rape and murder, they murder a whole town of their own people and they effectively encourage, compel the Benjamites to rape another 200 women. They brought them away apart from their own desire. And so this is the way that they solve their problems. We have this familiar refrain in verse 25. Israel's plight during the period of the judges. Summary of this whole time period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is consistent with with what Solomon would say. Uh, He would observe a few generations later in Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision... 
the people are unrestrained. Where there is no revelation or leadership, the people are unrestrained. Israel is in a desperate situation because they need a leader. Let me give you uh, four points of application tonight. Number one, don't be quick to point the finger. Don't be quick to point the finger at someone else. It's very simple for us to point the finger at someone else when we get caught in a sin. And we can even do like the, ben- or like the people of Israel do, to point the finger at God. God, why have you caused this to happen? This is what happened to the very first sin that Adam blamed uh, Eve and effectively blamed God. It's the, it's the wife that you gave to me. If you would have given me a better wife, I could have handled this better. So he effectively blames Eve and God at the same time. Eve blames the serpent. And, and that's the nature of what happens when we get caught in sin. We're quick to point the finger at someone else. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Or even God, it's your fault. Israel is shocked at the circumstances in which they find themselves and they ask God, why has this happened? But the, but the real test of spiritual maturity, the real test, is when we are able to look into the mirror of God's Word and allow the Word of God to shine like a bright light into the recesses of our darkened hearts and expose the evil that is hidden there. That, that's a sign of real spiritual maturity. Being willing to be exposed to the truth of Scripture. Instead, we often hide from the light of God's Word. We, we are quick to pass the blame to someone else. And this is where Israel found itself certainly much deeper into sin than they ever would have guessed. Number two, the deception and bondage of sin is extremely powerful. The deception and bondage of sin is extremely powerful. The deception of sin is so powerful that if you went up to the people of Israel at this time during the period of the judges and asked them if they were willing to follow God's desire, I believe that they would be so self-deceived and so caught up in what they were doing that they would think that they were doing everything right. Because after all, they called on God, right? Remember during the battle? God, should we go up? God says, yes, go up. I think they thought what they were doing was according to what God wanted them to do. And that is the nature of sin, friends. That we are quick to justify all of our actions because, hey, we've got a good few good acts of service that we are doing, when in that reality, our hearts could be far from God. We are quick to justify our own motives. It's one thing for us to do evil in the sight of God, but it's a completely different thing to do evil and then, as verse 25 reads, think that it's right. Every man did what they thought was, and we could insert instead of right, pleasing to God in their own eyes. And that is the deceptive and, uh, and enslaving nature of sin. And this can happen to us as well. We can go right on doing what we think is right or pleasing to God in our own eyes and find out down the road that we had deceived ourselves. That we were, we were blinded to what was going on. 
our solutions tend to come in the form of repairing the consequences. We, we tend to clean up messes that come as a result of our sin instead of fixing the problem. For example, if you had a mole in your yard and he got messing up your lawn, just imagine you have a yard. Right now you can't see it, but imagine you have one and you have a mole and he keeps messing up your lawn. You could go around for the entire summer and fill the holes back in and plant new seed. But how long would that go on if you just kept cleaning up the mess that the mole was creating? I would suggest that it would go on for as long as that mole lived there. As long as you didn't get rid of that mole, right? This is what economists call moral hazard. There's a there's a good example of this in our recent history in 2008 when the government fell into this trap and they kept trying to correct the consequences that came about from the housing bubble that was in place instead of fixing the actual problem. They kept they kept cleaning up the mess, so to speak, till eventually it just kind of blew up. And all of their cleaning up of the messes is basically like making your bed in a burning house. It's of no value. They're ignoring the main problem. Parents can do this with teenagers. The teen acts out in rebellion and causes all sorts of damage to themselves and to their family and to the people around them. And the parents come behind the teenager and settle things with the police officer, settle things at school, cover up all the problems, and never address the real issue. And the problem with this sort of approach is not only that it doesn't correct the problem, but it actually makes the problem worse. Why? Because the teenager in this example now has a reason to stop... He has no reason, I should say, to stop acting this way. Right? He has no reason to give up his immoral ways. Why? Because mom and dad are going to come and clean it up. He has now an incentive to continue in the way that he's living. Friends, I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to clean up messes rather than confront problems at times. And I think I do this even in my own life. When when I know that there is sin that needs to be dealt with, but instead of confronting that sin, instead of going to the truth of God's Word, finding out what the Scripture says about it, and and meditating on that, I instead clean up the consequences of sin. Kind of just clean up the messes. And the solution for Israel, the solution for the parent, the solution for the government, the solution for the mole problem in our yard is to get to the heart of the problem. It's to get to the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is the heart of the person. The only way that that's going to happen, the only way that we can avoid moral hazard, cleaning up the mess without taking care of the problem, is if we get into the Word of God. If, the, if we are confronted with the Word of God. Listen to Joshua 1.8. This book of the law, Joshua says, at the beginning of the conquest, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. There is a great danger there is great enslavement that comes along with sin. Great deception. And, and that pull of sin to deceive us and to destroy us is very powerful. 
And if we don't allow ourselves to be confronted by the truth of God's Word as we come under its teaching, as we read it for ourselves, as we allow other people to, to see our lives, in some cases for our closer relationships, to see our lives exposed before them, that is, our spiritual lives, and we are in great danger of being much like Israel, just cleaning up the mess without getting to the heart of the problem. Number three, God is relentlessly merciful to His people. God is relentlessly merciful to His people. One thing that should not get lost in the story of this tragic time period is that God is relentlessly merciful to His people. Isn't it amazing that God didn't completely wipe out not just Benjamin, but all of the tribes of Israel? Listen to how debased they were. This is Nehemiah's assessment of this time period, the time period of the judges. In chapter 9, verse 26, he asks God for forgiveness on behalf of the nation of Israel. And here he is talking about the book of Judges. But they, the people of Israel at that time, became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they, the people of Israel during the time of Judges, committed great blasphemies But nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Could we not say that about our own lives? That we often take God's law, put it behind our back. We often seek to remove from our lives the prophets of God, so to speak, the the people who are speaking on behalf of God. We put all that behind our back. We, We commit these great acts of sin, and yet... Nevertheless, God in His great compassion did not make an end of us, but He was gracious and compassionate. Don't miss out on when we read passages of God, God's really judgment. In this case, it's, it's giving them over to the sin that they enjoy. Don't miss out in passages like this on God's overriding mercy in, face, in the face of perpetual defiance. This is God. This is the same God that we serve. This is the same God that we serve today. That we often turn from Him. We, as we sing, are prone to wander. And yet, God still relentlessly pursues us and is merciful to us. And then number four, we need a godly leader. We need a godly leader. What Israel needed was not just any old king. Like the pagans, they had kings. So let us get a king. Lots of nations had kings but they spiraled into their own destruction. What Israel needed was a godly king. They needed a godly leader, a God-appointed ruler who would seek to please God. And, and these rulers in Deuteronomy 17, long before Israel would get a king, were supposed to do something very important. And this is often overlooked when we look at the Old Testament. But they were supposed to read the book of the law every day. Now, it's not clear if they were supposed to read the entire thing every day, but they were supposed to read it every day and understand it and obey it. It wasn't about God building an empire for the nation of Israel and making that nation great. It was about the nation listening to God, trusting God, allowing Him to make them great. Do it on God's terms. And if you think about Israel in terms of their history, they really reach the pinnacle of their existence during the reign of their first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. But, like all good kings in the Old Testament, they would all die. 
And other kings would be raised up, some good, some evil. But the best kings among the people of Israel that, that led the people of Israel eventually died. And so Israel would often wander away from God. They often ebbed and flowed based on the quality, the spiritual uh, viability of their leader. But, but even the best of kings could not guarantee Israel's perpetual discipleship of God, following of God. They needed a perfect, undying king. And we know that that perfect, undying king has come. And although he was perfect, and although he came to deliver Israel, Israel rejected him. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own knew him not. And as a result, he was beaten and killed. But that king has not given up on Israel, has he? And there will come a time when Israel will be compelled to repent at the end of the tribulation. And that king will return in all of his glory to destroy his enemies and to exalt himself above all others. And that king is Jesus. And he came to save his people from their sins. He offers salvation to all who will acknowledge and turn from their sins. He offers salvation to all who will believe that He alone is enough to satisfy the demands that God has for us. Paul said in Romans 10, 9-10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I say to you that if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord and have not believed in His death and resurrection, then come to Jesus today and He will surely give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your mercy that You continue to pursue us despite our our drifting away from You, despite our wandering away and despite the distractions that that we have, some even self-made distractions, despite the fact that we don't deal with the problems at their root often, we like to just clean up messes, I pray that you would help us to, to allow ourselves to be exposed fully to the light of your word. May it shine brightly into our hearts, expose all the dark parts, show us where we need to change. Forgive us for where we have failed You. Help us to come to You and and acknowledge Your your mercy. Thankful that You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. May our church be a refuge for those who have turned to Jesus Christ. And may it be a place where we call out to those who have not. Lord, we want to honor You with our lives. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.